Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 5-7, The Temptation of Christ. What role do we play in Christ's cosmic victory over the powers? When can we expect to be tempted? And does the baptism of the Holy Spirit put you in another class of Christianity? Steve answers these questions and more as he teaches from the first half of Matthew chapter 4. Hi, good to be with you again as we're going through this study of the Gospel of Matthew together. Last week, we looked at primarily at Jesus' baptism, and this week I want to talk about the temptation in the wilderness, which is chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. It's, a, it's an episode that has been written about and sermonized thousands of times over the last 2,000 years. But before we go into it, I want to give us a little bit of a, of a background of this episode because I want to establish a really important understanding of the warfare that is going on between Christ and Satan. Um, this is the context for what is their first direct encounter uh, in this passage. We saw Satan's work indirectly uh, in chapter 2 when he worked through Herod to to slaughter the, the infants. But I want us to see all that is going on today, and in fact, I want us to remember it through the gospel, in this context of, of, of warfare, because the most fundamental thing that Jesus came to accomplish was to defeat the devil, to defeat Satan. 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. It's interesting that Jesus, on three different occasions, identified Satan as the prince of this world. Uh, John says in 1 John that the entire world is under the power of the evil one. And I've always found it very interesting what Paul said. It's in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He calls him the God of this world or the God of this age. Everything that Jesus was about was was about taking back uh, the world that Satan had seized and about restoring humanity to our proper position as guardians of the earth. As we go through Matthew's gospel, uh, we need to remember that every healing, every deliverance, every salvation rescue is, is about Christ and his kingdom advancing by taking back territory from the enemy. Therefore, all Christ's activity is conflict with the devil. This central theme runs through Matthew's entire account. Remember I told you the first week or two that this Matthew's gospel is not just a series of, of narrative events, but it is so carefully structured to move us in, a, in an arc uh, of a narrative arc for sure, but moving toward God's ultimate purpose in history. Um, this central theme, we'll see it uh, grow and grow and grow and culminate in the cross and the resurrection. What took place at the cross, you see, was the defeat of Satan. And Jesus defeated Satan not by fighting back, but by absorbing all that Satan threw at him. So let me just talk very briefly for a moment about what was taking place at the cross because it really ties in. It's like bookends, this temptation in the wilderness 
and, and the cross. This is how Jesus bore our sin, by voluntarily experience, experiencing the full force of, of Satan and the powers that be. Uh, he experienced the full consequence of sin that otherwise we would have experienced. Um, when he did that, he defeated the enemy. He broke open uh, the gates of hell. That's what we remember on Holy Saturday. Um, he destroyed the power of sin and erased uh, the, the law that stood against us really as our judge. Um, by doing this, he freed us to receive the Holy Spirit and he freed us to walk in holiness, in right relationship with God. The cross makes it possible for us to participate in Christ's cosmic victory because Satan is not just the God of this world, but the God of this age, of the cosmos, the fallen cosmos. And so because of the cross, we can participate in that victory of Christ over the powers, but we choose whether we'll participate or not. If we do, then we find ourselves empowered um, with the... (laughs) with all that we need from the Spirit of God, including what David called a willing spirit. Remember Psalm 51, he said, give me a willing spirit to overcome evil. We, there's a, there's, there's a, a capacity that was won for us at the cross if we choose to embrace and receive that. And this is the whole key uh, to following the Jesus way. So with that bit of an introduction, now let's get into the temptation or testing uh, in the wilderness, which is chapter 4 of Matthew, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone." By the way, he was quoting Psalm 91. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, to Christ, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Let me just take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, um, you have really stirred my heart over this whole episode. And I'm asking now for anointing and for all of us to, to begin to see things we've not seen before. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is so much to be learned from this episode. 
uh, how Jesus dealt with temptation and testing, um, the reversal of the defeat in the garden all the way back to Genesis 3. And uh, this takes us back to Matthew's theme of recreation that we talked about a few weeks ago. And there, we can learn that temptation and testing is, is a fundamental issue of identity. So a little bit of background. You may not be aware that, but in first century Israel, uh, there was a rabbinic tradition that one, when Messiah comes, he will stand on the roof of the temple and he will announce to all of Israel, you poor, the time of your redemption draws nigh. Secondly, in that tradition, when Messiah comes, there will be a repetition of the gift of manna, of bread in the desert. I think this is why the Jews tried so hard to make Jesus king after he multiplied the loaves and the fish. We'll read about that uh, much later on in uh, Matthew's account. And so what, what Satan was tempting Jesus to do was to bypass the path of of simple obedience, and rather to adopt the role of the son and king without stooping to the role of the suffering servant. So, we see history coming around again. Where Adam failed and Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. The second thing I want us to see before we we go on is that Jesus is led up to the desert by the Holy Spirit, to have his true identity fully disclosed. It's interesting. He goes after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, and uh, it says he was hungry. Today's translation, I think, said famished. But this 40 days of fasting, once again, we see Matthew on the whole fulfillment theme, that, that this is a fulfillment of what took place with Israel and and with the the patriarchs, um, we see the same pattern. Is uh, again, he's forty days in the wilderness fasting. Israel was forty years. Uh, Israel, God called my son, and of course Jesus. This is my beloved son. We see Moses and Elijah in. Uh, going for 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Um, Matthew's going to continue with this connection. Uh, He's connecting the life of Christ and the history of Israel. Now, fasting and hunger stresses Jesus' humanity, that when he encountered the devil, he did so from a place of physical weakness. But it also, this episode, stresses his divinity. And I think that we're going to see Satan ultimately was unsuccessful in his effort here because he dealt with Jesus as though he was only human. He was fully human and fully divine, fully God. Now, the temptation shows us something very important, that Jesus was no less human than we are. Satan tried to tempt Jesus in three areas. One, to gratify his hunger as a human. Secondly, to tempt him to use his power. And thirdly, to prove to everyone, including Satan, his self-revelation that he truly was the Son of God. 
one of the church fathers who I, I love what he writes, Hillary, said this, By spurning the glory of human authority and disregarding the ambition of this age, we may remember to worship only the Lord God, because all the honor of this age is the devil's affair. Isn't that interesting? We'll get back into that a little deeper later. Uh, temptation, by the way, the, the word probably is more literally translated as tempting, or testing, rather. Um, temptation should not be a surprise, especially after, after we've undergone baptism or maybe any other time of real consecration when we've had a profound time with the Lord and we make a real serious commitment. We shouldn't be surprised. Um, the wisdom of Sirach uh, which is uh, one of the books in the in the Septuagint, says this, My son, if you come forward to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for temptation. Set your heart right and be steadfast. Jesus gave us um, the example after his baptism. He allowed himself to be led um, to, to the very place where he would wrestle with the devil. So we shouldn't be surprised or troubled. Part of our process of growing in Christ is learning to deal with temptation. I had a, an early mentor who used to say, every time you make a serious commitment to follow the Lord, I mean, it can be tangible. Maybe he's telling you to move to another city or or." or he's calling you into another career, or whatever it may be that the Lord is calling you, he said, you can be sure the devil will always offer you a trade. And it seems so rational, and it seems, well, that, that makes sense, or that's easier. Be prepared. He'll always offer you a trade. In the setting of the wilderness, we see something else. The enemy especially attacks people who are isolated, who are on their own. When we're with other believers, Satan is less likely to attack and and less effective. I love the verse in Psalm 27, in the day of trouble, he will hide me in his tabernacle. Um, We are the temple of God, and there has never been uh, in the history of Christianity such an individualistic view of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, And it's been made worse by COVID, certainly. A favorite quote of mine for years has been from John Wesley, the, the famous evangelist from the 1700s. He said, there is nothing so unchristian as a solitary Christian. <clears throat> Here's another point. John Chrysostom, another one of the early church fathers, he gives several reasons why God allows us to enter into this battle with the enemy of of testing and temptation. He says, first of all, it's to encourage us that we are becoming stronger. Secondly, he lets us into this so that we don't in any way become puffed up by uh, our spiritual progress or even the spiritual gifts that we have received. Thirdly, in the process of, of temptation, we can show the devil that we have entirely renounced him. By the way, that was part of the early baptismal creed. Do you hereby, before people were baptized, you renounce the devil and all his works? So it's a way that we can we can put a stake in the ground. 
And uh, he gives another reason. Temptation allows us to continue to grow, to continue to get stronger. And fifthly, this can be a real encouragement. It's a sign of the treasure that the Lord has entrusted us with. Because the devil wouldn't bother us unless he sees we are, we are advancing spiritually, that we are becoming more of a threat. Notice also that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. He didn't look for temptation. Scripture clearly says, uh, don't resist temptation. It never says that. It says resist the, resist the devil. But it says only do one thing with temptation, flee. But once we're confronted with it, we should stand faithfully. And that's part of what we learn today in this, in this episode. Um, St. Jerome said, led against his will or as a prisoner, but as by a desire for conflict. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was led, and he wasn't led as a prisoner in chains, but a desire, a readiness for conflict, which which takes us right back to how I started today. Satan actually has nothing, yet he claims that all things are his. We see this again and again through this episode. You know, I'll give you this. I'll let you have that. But the giving of Satan is always a lie. We need to remember that. You know, in the garden, the devil made uh, false offers. He lifted up uh, Adam and Eve's hopes that you can be like God and you'll know good and evil. And instead, instead of the giving, he threw them down and he created havoc, uh, waging war that has not stopped from that day to this. So remember, when Satan wants to give you something, it's always, always a lie. When Christ went into the desert to confront the enemy, he was stepping into spiritual warfare. And we're going to see spiritual warfare happening throughout Matthew's gospel, culminating, as I said earlier, at the cross. Jesus did whatever was necessary to rescue us, whatever was necessary for our salvation, and he did it both by proactively acting and by allowing himself to be acted upon. Just like Jesus, we're called into spiritual warfare. The more we follow hard after Jesus, the more warfare we can anticipate. I promise you that. You, many of you would know that for, for a long time now, um, Christina and I and others who follow us have gone out into the front lines of the developing world and we'll, we'll go usually for, oh, 12, 14 days. And every day we're preaching the gospel. We're laying hands on the sick and watching them heal. We're casting out demons. Uh, But I want you to know it always comes with profound spiritual warfare. We feel it building and building, usually for about two weeks before we go. And and we often have to wrestle through the whole journey of compassion itself. So you can anticipate more warfare as you determine to follow hard after Jesus. Um, Again, John Chrysostom said this, You took up arms at your baptism. Not to be idle, but to fight. 
Uh, just go back quickly to what I said last week. I think we need to approach baptism sometimes with a greater sense of urgency and seriousness and reverence, understanding, as Christostom said. We didn't get baptized just to be in a safe place, but rather to step into the fight. So, let's look at the first at the three temptations. The first temptation. The tempter came and said to Jesus, "If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread." But Jesus answered, "It is written, one who one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God." So, Satan begins with, if you are the Son of God. If it was a taunt, and it may or may not have been, we'll look at that in a moment, but if Satan was taunting him, notice it's the very same taunt that was thrown at Jesus on the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down. In both cases, Satan is trying to annul Jesus' purpose for coming to earth. He's trying to get him to react and short-circuit. Satan's aim in this whole encounter was to entice Jesus to use powers that were rightly his to use, but which he had abandoned, he'd laid down in order to carry out his father's mission. So if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. I think the beginning point of this entire exchange is not about his hunger. It's about his identity. Just before he goes into the desert, the father declares for all to hear, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The first point of attack was about sonship. And folks, this is always at the heart of Satan's attack. He attacks our identity. You know, when he heard, Jesus heard, you're my beloved son, as I told you last week, it touched two of the great needs that are in every life, including his. One is identity, and the other is security. And the enemy will always, always go after these. He tries to get us to forget who we really are. He does that a lot. And who we really are, Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, we're chosen, we're blessed, we're in the beloved, we are sons and daughters. Now, the other aspect here is interesting. Satan speaks with the voice of a doubter. He says, if you are the son of God. I think that doubt is always the, the, the lever it is always the, the starting point of temptation. So let's just connect for a little bit again about baptism and temptation. As I said last week, baptism is not a ritual. It's not something we're expected to do. It is an empowering. The Holy Spirit landed upon Jesus. I am convinced that when we are water baptized, there is an infilling of the Spirit. And I'm going back to this because I kind of, after last week, I thought, boy, I wish I'd emphasize that more. So I'm going to say it now. There's an empowering that happens in water baptism. And Satan knows it. And I think that's why he, he has, his strategy is to delay. 
So many of us come from a tradition where there's four, six, even 12 weeks of baptism class before before people are actually baptized. And I promise you from, from experience, not only in North America, but as I work with pastors in the developing world, uniformly, as the weeks go by of this preparation, more and more people drop out. It seems to me a strategy because Satan knows that if we are baptized, there is an infilling, there's an empowering of the of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural empowering that's going to strengthen us, it's going to protect us, it's going to equip us. So he's very happy when we encourage people to delay. I think also when we underestimate what has happened in the invisible spiritual realm in baptism, we become vulnerable uh, to doubt about our true spiritual state. My years as a pastor Many times I had people come and say, well, I was baptized, but I, I feel like I need to be baptized again because I'm more committed. I mean it more now. There's another aspect. I, I came to Christ in the Jesus People movement of the 70s, and, and I stepped right into the, the charismatic renewal. And uh, there were so many wonderful things about that and things I still carry on in my life. But there's one thing that I... I I think we were wrong about. We talked about the baptism of the Spirit as if it was a a fuller, more complete experience. Um, And so we would say, have you had the baptism of the Spirit? And what that did was it it created this, I think, false dichotomy between first and second class Christians. If you look closely at the New Testament, especially look in the book of Acts, you'll see that there are multiple fillings with the Holy Spirit, and it begins at baptism, but there's multiple fillings, and those fillings are profound. They're, they're a huge encounter. I've had many of them over the years. But you know, without this full confidence of the complete work of baptism, that, that, that there's this empowering of the Spirit And we recognize that sanctification, being changed, is a lifelong process. But this initial empowering, if we don't have full confidence in the work of our water baptism for that, we tend to be looking for experiences that confirm our standing. Okay, I got that off my chest. Satan addresses physical hunger. And he tells tells Jesus to remedy it. Just turn these stones into bread. And when he tempts him, what he's really saying is, and he tempts us with the same thing. Are you sure you belong to God? Have you seen signs that you belong to God? After all, you have these problems instead of being victorious over them. Jesus, you have this problem. You're hungry instead of being victorious. You see, this is connected with the insecurity that comes from not recognizing the, the spiritual power of our baptism. I, I sometimes feel like there's a, an underlying insecurity in the victorious message that is so prevalent in 21st century North American Christianity. Just get rid of your problems. Turn, turn your stones in, in your life into bread. And then people will believe that you're close to God. So here's an application. We need to choose. We need to turn around, metanoia, turn our way, change our thinking. We need to choose to believe, to cling to, to hold on to the powerful truth of our baptism. 
with the identity in Christ that it establishes for us. Because without that, I promise you, there will always be a constant desire to, to prove to yourself and maybe even to others that you, you are who you say you are. And it may be, you know, spiritual experiences, or it could be any measuring stick. But without that, that deep clinging to the truth of what took place at your baptism, we are vulnerable to that. Another point on this first temptation. By being hungry, Jesus chooses to identify and participate fully in our human condition. Like we saw last week, Matthew, uh, not last week, like we saw a few weeks ago, in Matthew's genealogy, Jesus' humanity was stressed. He stresses his humanity besides his divinity, Matthew does. Here again, um, the church father Hillary, it was necessary to defeat the devil, not by God, but by the flesh. For the devil would not have dared to tempt him, God, unless he recognized the weakness that hunger brings into human nature. I love that Jesus identified so fully with us through his whole life. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Hebrews 4.14.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Jesus understood hunger, discomfort, lack. He understood it at that time as the Father's will for him. Therefore, he didn't try to avoid it. He didn't avoid it by eating in the 40 days. He didn't avoid it by turning the the stones into bread. Um, So this was a test of his complete trust in God. It's the same test that that Israel had failed. Uh, God had humbled them through hunger, and he fed them manna. Uh, What he was doing was he was teaching that he was trustworthy. And so he was teaching them. When Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, he was quoting out of Deuteronomy the lesson that Israel had learned. You know, it's interesting. Satan's trying to lure him uh, into a, a presumptuous act. Turn the stones into bread. Later, but he wouldn't do a miracle to prove who he was, to authenticate. Later, Jesus wouldn't comply with the Pharisees when they wanted him to do a miracle. It's the same temptation. Secondly, he's teaching us to answer temptation with Scripture. Each time he answered with Scripture. He used the Scriptures. In this case, all three are from two different chapters in Deuteronomy. But he used them is spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.17 says, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Here's something else really interesting. Jesus refuses, Jesus refuses to turn the stones into bread. But later in chapter 26, he will give his body as bread for all people. 
He broke the bread, said, take, eat, this is my body. Isn't that interesting? And I'm sure that that Matthew structured this with a great awareness of that. Adam and Eve, all the way back to Genesis 3, they left paradise and they went out, the Bible says, east of Eden, into the wilderness. And it happened through the deception and the temptation of Satan. Now Jesus goes into the wilderness and begins to reverse the process by overcoming deception and thereby beginning to lead us back to paradise, our true home. He's leading us back to the garden. I find that powerful of of what is going on here. We're out, and now he's beginning to lead us back. Now, there's another possibility that, that Satan wasn't being derisive when he said, oh, well, if you're the son of God, it is possible that, that he was suspicious but unsure of the true identity of Jesus. Um, Jesus. Jesus didn't abandon his nature as a man. And as I said, he was defeated in this exchange by Jesus as a man. But the ancient scholars, the church fathers, even the early church, they saw the exchange with Satan as, as him trying to find out if Jesus was the Son of God. My modern assumption had always been that Satan knew that, uh, but was just trying to get him to sin, that, that he was again being derisive. But it's interesting that, that much of the early church writers said he wasn't completely sure if Jesus was indeed the Son of Man. And they actually saw the interaction with, between Satan and Jesus as, as Satan being rather fearful. One of the early church fathers, Chromatius, you're getting lots of quotes from church fathers today. This is what he feared most of all, that after he had filled the world with sins, uh, then there would be someone come to take away those sins of the world. He was frightened indeed by all these utterances, but did not yet fully believe that the Son of God, who he had heard, uh, sorry, that he now beheld as a man in the flesh. He wasn't sure that was the Son of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so he was in a terrible state of fear. And in this, he seeks to find out whether these things he had heard about Jesus were true. He'd heard about the virgin birth. He'd heard uh, about his baptism, etc., so that's just turning it a little bit from what I've always assumed to a different understanding that he wasn't completely sure. Let's move on to the second temptation, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, there it is again, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, 
Do not put the Lord your God to the test. We've got a number of things we can learn from this exchange. One, Satan put Jesus at the pinnacle of the temple. He was tempting him to to tower, symbolically to tower over what the temple represented, the law and the prophets. And then he says, throw yourself down. Notice, he didn't throw him down. You see that the devil can try to persuade and trick us, but he can't actually cast us down. And look at the setting. Setting's always so important, especially for Matthew. We're going to see this on the Sermon of the Mount. But look at the setting. He takes him to the holy city to stand on the temple, uh, the pinnacle of the temple, which is the holy place. The devil reads holy scripture to Jesus. In the first temptation, Jesus worked, uh, Satan worked on Jesus' hunger, uh, what he saw as weakness. But in this second one, he is working on Jesus' strength. He never accuses Jesus of not being holy enough. You see, Satan knows that our strength can be our vulnerability. Our strength can lead to, to pride. Uh, to an overconfidence, to presumption. We need to really be careful of that. He quotes scripture, Psalm 91, but it's incomplete and out of context because he quotes verses 12 and 13, but the very next verse says this, the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Now, the very first messianic promise is back in the garden. It's uh, after God shows up. It's Genesis 3.15. And the first messianic promise is that a man's going to stomp on your head. You know, reading scripture out of context is is very dangerous because in no way does Psalm 91 say that that we should we should be have bravado that we should court danger. You know, I I've watched this. I've watched it in the church. I've I've watched where where government rules and regulations are just are just thrown aside. Oh, we don't have to do that. I, I remember going on a journey of compassion to Kyrgyzstan in the capital city of Bishkek, and we couldn't, we couldn't share the gospel out on the streets because two weeks earlier, a Western group, a North American group, had come in and said, we don't care what your law is, nobody can stop us, and they went out on the streets, they got shut down, they got shipped out, and nobody could evangelize except within a church building. Now, the Lord was good to us. We, The word got out, and we just had, over the week, we had, I guess, thousands of Muslims come, and many turned to Christ. But I use that as an example. And, you know, we're in a time where uh, there's been a, a kind of a, a flouting of the law uh, in different places. And, and, and that's not what 91, Psalm 91 is saying. Jesus knew that that his challenge, Satan's challenge, wasn't about having enough faith to jump off the the temple, but about presumption or even self-aggrandizement, bringing attention to himself. So again, his response is, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't try to manipulate God, in other words. And uh, this, this points us right back to exactly what Israel did 
uh, in the wilderness. <sighs> the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. I'm reading from Exodus 17. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? See that word test. But the Lord thirsted, uh, but the people thirsted there for water and they complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So then God says to him, strike the rock, Moses, and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord not among us? Jesus shows us a key principle here. Scripture interprets Scripture. We talked a little bit about this on uh, week two when we had uh, Brad Jerzak with us. The enemy takes two verses, 12 and 13, and he quotes them out of context, which which means their real meaning is turned and is twisted. But Jesus used Scripture in the broader sense to respond. Scripture interprets Scripture. We've got to be like Jesus. He loved the Scripture. He was steeped in the Scripture. Let me just say, the more that we know the Bible, the better we are equipped to recognize the whole counsel of God. I want to encourage you, steep yourself in the Bible, get into a pattern, get into a rhythm where you saturate your mind and your spirit with the scriptures day after day after day, because it's where we begin to understand that larger perspective, the whole counsel of God. So what has happened here? Jesus has countered Satan's literalism, which literalism is always a very small little view, with the careful wisdom of a God-centered understanding. Remember, we want the literal meaning, which is what what is the point? What is the truth the author is trying to make here? But not literalism. Just to review, we've taught you a couple of times through this series. We learned to read the scripture, the literal meaning. Uh, what is the what is the central point? The moral. How can this make me more Christ-like? And the spiritual or water to wine reading. How can this point to the crucifixion and the resurrection? So, how do we know? How did Jesus know? that to jump off the temple wasn't faith but presumption. Because to do so would mean there was no other reason than to have another validating experience that he would know, first of all, and secondly, other people would say, oh, look, he is the Son of God. He knew that was presumptuous. So Jesus gave us a wonderful standard for helping us to know the will of God which includes scripture in context. And it was in Matthew 22, love God with everything you got, love people with everything you got. So the two questions for understanding if it's the will of God, does it honor God and will it help another person? Obviously, the answer was no for Jesus. The third 
temptation. Verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came to minister to him. The church fathers were pretty well unanimous in saying that this third temptation was was a, a type of vision because there is no literal mountain high enough in the world to show all the kingdoms of the world. Um. And so I, I think clearly, and I have for a long time, that this this is exactly what was going on as if it was very, very real in his mind. It was a true huh, demonic vision, um, but it wasn't probably that he was literally on a mountain that was so high. But I want you to see something. Satan's offers are getting higher and higher. He starts with just meeting the basic needs. Why don't you feed yourself? And then he's up on a holy place. He's on the pinnacle of the temple. And now he's offering him all the kingdoms of the world. It is imagination. And here's the application for you and I. The enemy uses our imagination. Please hear that. The enemy uses our imagination. And he uses it to try to delude us, to confuse us, He can even lead us down a conflict that never actually happened with somebody. We've all had that, an imaginary conversation with someone. He presents things that are not real and things that have not really happened as if they had. So we need to guard for that. What's interesting is, while Satan in these temptations leads Jesus higher and higher, literally, But they represent acclaim, reputation, power, influence. The Holy Spirit has been taking him lower and lower. He just came from his baptism where he walked 70 miles, where he humbled himself to be baptized uh, by John. He, He just came lower. He just came through the weakness of the desert for 40 days. The the going lower is always the way of Christ because it's the way of the cross. See, what we're seeing in in his going lower and and, and not buying into this self-aggrandizement, it points us directly toward the victory of the cross because Jesus defeats Satan not by the power of his divinity, but by the mystery of his complete humility. I told you last week that's called kenosis, kenotic love, self-emptying. It's perfect humility that is demonstrated. And and it begins by being demonstrated in in the hunger of his body and by denying anything that would draw attention to himself. Anything that is aggrandizing is always a temptation of Satan. From the low place of human hunger and weakness, he says, oh, you don't have to be hungry. And then the the temple 
is about this grand entrance into Jerusalem. Jump off and you'll make the front page of the news. Everybody, this it's a grand entrance. And look at the contrast. We're going to read about it um, later on in, in Matthew 21, where the way Jesus really comes into Jerusalem is not a big splashy jumping off. But he, Palm Sunday, he comes in on a colt. Satan says, listen, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all earthly authority, all the kingdoms of the earth. But how does Matthew finish his gospel? All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Jesus refused to use his power, his divinity, his influence to build or even to protect the work that the Father gave him to do. Certainly, he would build his church. He said, you know, I build my church. He tells Peter that. And, and he would uh, be fruitful and so bring glory to the Father. John chapter 15. But as we will watch all the way through, he didn't strive to do that. He didn't strive to build or protect what he had. And that way, his mission, as faithful as he was to his mission, it never became his God. Here's another point from this last temptation. Satan actually has nothing, yet he claims that all things are his. The giving is always a lie. I told you that in the garden, it never, ever changes. When Satan offers Jesus the world in exchange for his worship, Jesus tells Satan that actually Satan should fall down and worship God because all creation should. There's a great irony here because you've got Satan is offering the possession of the world and he's offering it to the creator, the one who created it all. So Jesus presents us with a great example by spurning the glory of of human prestige and authority and disregarding the ambition of this age, as Hillary says. Disregarding the ambition of this age. So here's another application for us. Just like earlier I said, beware of a trade. When you make a commitment to the Lord, the enemy is always going to offer you a trade. Beware of any offer or even an opportunity that feeds our ego-driven need for significance, apart from where our real source of significance is. And we're back to the baptism. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Be aware. If it it tickles uh, our ego, If it satisfies our drive that we're going to be successful, that we're going to have more than we have now, watch out. Because I think that's something else we learned from this whole encounter. So just to wrap it up, the Father, of course, had much to say about the temptations in the wilderness. They understood that we, as those who belong to Christ, are in a great cosmic battle. And 
I think that the fathers had a much more acute awareness of spiritual warfare. They always understood the balance of our own responsibility to follow the example of Jesus, the Jesus way, and not to blame Satan for our failings. They never did that, but they said, but we're in a war. And their awareness of the spiritual battle followed in the tradition of the apostles themselves. And Matthew presents us with Jesus in his humanity, battling Satan. And as we saw earlier, his victory gave us an example. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we will encounter the spiritual battle that was going on in his day. And it continues in ours until Christ's return. We were in a prayer meeting earlier today about some of our partners who are having great persecution in their nation brought against them. The battle continues to this day, but it also continues in a personal way. And it will continue in our day until Christ's return. But as we are going to see later, Christ really did disarm the power of Satan and sin and death at the cross. So just to finish, I want to leave you with just a couple of scriptures. There are many. But we'll finish with 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Discipline yourselves, keep alert, like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around. Um, sorry, I lost my way. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. I promise you, beloved, as I'm interacting and our staff interacts so closely, they are undergoing suffering, the same kind and beyond. And then a final verse is Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a serious encounter today, but it's filled with victory and with insight for for how to follow in the Jesus way. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Hey man, wow, uh, that was... That was a lot for 11 verses. Man, there's a lot of application in there. I honestly, I have way more questions than we have time for, so I'm going to have to figure out where we want to take this. But uh, I would like to tell people, if you have questions, send them to uh, podcast at impactnations.com, and uh, we'll be sure to tackle them, because I think there's a lot of questions that come out of there. I, I know I've got several, um, but I also I want to not go on too long today, so i got to resist my own temptation. Um, just before we get into questions, I just want to give a shout-out to the School of Purpose. Uh, the School of Purpose is in Uganda, in Kampala. It's run by our friend Annabelle and her whole team at the Remnant Generation. Uh, this is a ministry that uh, is teaching young 
women, uh, mostly young women, around Kampala, uh, giving them skills and some business training so that they can become self-sufficient. Most of these women uh, have no means. They did not receive any formal education. They didn't get through secondary school or even elementary school. Um, and so they don't have a way of providing for their families. Many of them were impregnated at the hands of an abuser, and now they've just they've got no way forward. So Annabelle and her team are teaching them, giving them skills, and then they give them job placements and things like that, internships where they can learn what life is like in the workplace so they can go on and succeed. And we just heard a story this week about two young women. They were given a job placement at a mechanic shop, and these two women are learning to become mechanics. And they got placed into a, a job where they're surrounded by young men. They were a little nervous about that, as you can imagine. And yet, of course, our team does such a great job of researching these places, making sure that they're a really awesome place for these young women to thrive. So these two young gals now have what they would consider big brothers. They've just got all these these men who are looking out for them, keeping them safe, and teaching them the tools of the trade. And they've got there's uh, some pictures on our website. You got to go check it out. Uh, there's pictures of them in their coveralls, their mechanics <laughs> uh, uniform. And these gals said when they go out uh, to you know whether to pick up parts or whatever, when they're out and about in their mechanics uniform, they say they just feel so confident, so secure. People respect them, uh, and they're just thrilled to see what's going to happen in their wow, lives. So, so one of them has set a goal to become the greatest female mechanic in Uganda, and I bet she's going to do it too. That's great. <laughs> do so. you think you and I could? get some mechanics coveralls <laughs> i think so yeah <laughs> might help um hey if you'd like to learn more about the school of purpose i'd encourage you to head to impactnations.com slash skills um there's a number of uh, programs on there but school of purpose is one of them check it out there's we've been doing that for three or four years now so there's loads of stories to read uh lives are being changed uh, if you'd like to participate there's a, a giving form right there we'd love to have you join us as we transform lives uh all right the temptation of Christ. Um, mm. I, you touched on one thing that I think is worth talking a little bit about because I, I think it's actually a, uh, I think it's a common misconception about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy uh-huh. Spirit. Uh, there, I don't know how long it's been going on, but there has been a tradition for a kind of a, an infilling of the Holy Spirit, where you know you may gather around and lay hands on somebody and just keep praying until they start praying in tongues, and then you know, okay, now you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, your teaching today seemed to indicate that that may not be your understanding of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Can you give us a bit of understanding as to? to what the church traditionally has understood to be mm. the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Well, it all depends by what you mean traditionally. Uh, <laughs> the, the model that you gave yeah. uh, is, uh, was really primarily initiated with the, uh, the rise of Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. the beginning of the 1900s. And um, part of their doctrine was that tongues was the evidence. Yeah. Um, as I said in my talk, that... Um, and as you know, I came to Christ in the 70s when so many people were, especially up and down the West Coast, and we pursued the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I am not in any way um, denigrating that because mm-hmm. I have I had a very particular experience. But I, as time has gone by, and I really try to study this, I believe with all my heart, as I said, that, that uh, the Holy Spirit comes just like happened for Jesus, you know, in uh, in chapter 3 of Matthew, that that when we're baptized, 
um, the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. Yeah. I gave some examples last week of overseas and watching that. But that um, we tend to, in some of our traditions, to almost minimize the significance beyond the ritual, beyond the kind of the expectation mm-hmm. uh, of water baptism. And in fact, it's very profound. And all through uh, the first uh, the first millennia, baptism was was considered really, really important. And so uh, I think the Holy Spirit comes upon us many, many times as much as we're eager to. And the point I was trying to make is if we do not really value uh, with, with reverence and holiness yeah. um, water baptism, I've seen it often leads to looking for other experiences to kind of authenticate that which we already have. Right. Yeah, uh, there's a, so much more I want to get into there, but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna move on. Um, you used a phrase that was really interesting. You said that doubt is a lever of temptation, um, and I think you're referring specifically, actually, to this. That's why I'm talking about it now. In terms of doubting the power of your baptism, doubting the experience you had when you said yes to Jesus, doubting your conversion effectively. Is that what you're saying when you say doubt is, yeah, is and, a lever and, of temptation? and really that was the model, uh, that was what the example we saw today in the passage. Yeah. If is a, is a doubt word, right? Yeah. If, um, when is a hope word. Yeah. If is a doubt word. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the enemy always plants doubt yeah. around whether it's our identity, which I think is primal, as we talked about, but whether it's even, did God really say that to you? Well, yeah. there we are. Mm. As I said it, we're back to Genesis 3. And so that's really what I, what I meant. So how do we combat that? How do we not live a life of doubt, but rather stand confident in, yes, that is who God says I am. Yes, that is what God said to me. How did Jesus do it? The scripture. Hmm that um, we need to be so grounded in the Scripture and pray through the Scripture. So it isn't just intellectual memorizing, although it's fine to memorize, but let it become more and more, um, you know, we often, I usually call it the Scripture, not the Word, and I know it's very popular among evangelists, call it the Word, and I don't have any problem. But I think John 1 tells us pretty clearly the Word is Jesus. But that aside... Um, the word becomes flesh. Uh, the the ideal becomes real. E. Stanley Jones said, and I think in Scripture it becomes part of us yeah. uh, through that lifestyle. Mm. So get in the Scripture prayerfully, mm. meditatively, uh, contemplatively. Yeah. Get in the scripture. And with others, I would say, by the way. And with it, others? Yeah, because that's another really good way to make sure that you are hearing truth from others, even audibly, just getting yep. it put in. But also helping you, as you said, scripture interprets scripture, and others will help you because they may say, well, hold up, this scripture over here it speaks to that. And you could say, I never noticed that. Indeed. That's how yeah. we grow. Yeah. That's right. Good. Um, all right. I have more questions, but we'll see if our listeners have more questions. We'll see if anybody emails them in. We're going to be having a, a, a full week of discussion pretty soon, actually. So uh, email those questions in from any either this teaching or any of the previous weeks, podcast at impactnations.com. You can write them in the comments at YouTube as well. Uh, as I say every week, 
Join us uh, every Thursday, 3 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. We're on YouTube Live. We'd love to interact with you live at the time. Uh, you can also just catch the recording on YouTube anytime during the week. There's a playlist organized, nice and neat and tidy with everything in order. Uh, if you are listening on your phone, you can do so uh, just by going to impactnations.com slash podcast. We've got all the episodes listed there. You can listen uh, right on the website. Better yet, subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Uh, there's subscribe buttons right across there, impactnations.com com slash podcast you can hit subscribe and you will start getting the audio downloaded to your device every week you can listen to that on your way into work or what have you so thanks so much for joining us it's been a pleasure to be with you this week and we can't wait to see you again next week thank you god bless